This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I'd like to welcome people to this latest PTJ podcast, actually the first podcast of the new year. And this is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And I'm really pleased to have as my guest today, Dr. Shirley Sarman, who is Professor Emerita at the Program in Physical Therapy at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Welcome, Shirley. Thank you so much, Alan. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Dr. Sarman has just published in PTJ a point of view article. It's entitled, Defining Our Diagnostic Labels Will Help Define Our Movement Expertise and Guide Our Next 100 Years. I really enjoyed reading the point of view, and I have enjoyed discussing these issues with you over the years, Shirley, so I'm looking forward to talking about your article today. Let me start with a point that you make early on in your point of view. You state that Questions still remain as to whether physical therapists are recognized outside our profession as movement experts, diagnosing cause of and factors contributing to pain, movement dysfunction, and compromised uh, function. What leads you to believe, first of all, that this is the case? And why do you think these misperceptions continue to persist? As I stated in in the article, listening to a a radio interview by a physician who was on a a major committee for AMA about opioid overprescription, and um, she said in this interview that we need to recognize patients that can be treated by other modalities like uh, cold packs, physical therapy, yoga, and to be put into these kinds of of categories by a, a major physician just speaks to that point. Plus, I've had interactions over the years is since I was half-time in neurology, and they would ask me, the neurologists and neurosurgeons would ask me to fill out the checkout form for physical therapy. I've dealt with orthopedic surgeons that told me not to give exercises for the scapula, just for the rotator cuff, you know, and I didn't want to dissuade them that it was attached to the scapula. But, um, and, and then recently, one of my colleagues just published a big article in, uh, in JAMA and uh, a physician acts, asked to, to look at it. And he just said, well, you know, there are a lot of things that help people with back pain, even though her changes were incredibly significant and more than most people expect. And, and sort of dealing with a lot of uh, people outside of the profession, I, I know that we are not looked at. If, if somebody wants an exercise program, they go to a personal trainer, uh, a yoga teacher, a Pilates class, they, they don't, if, if you have a stroke or you get a new limb or, or you have a joint replacement, then, then we're looked at as, as somewhat valuable, but not, not because of really what we know and nor have we made a good case about the complexity of uh, exercise and movement. Well, and you make, you make a good point about physical therapy continuing to be perceived as a modality or an intervention. And, you know, you're emphasizing outside the profession, but I have to say as an editor of PTJ, I still see it inside the profession. We get submissions from physical therapists who describe their intervention as physical therapy. 
Well, my sense is we might be contributing to that problem as well. I wonder about your thoughts on that. Totally, I 100% agree. And, and then when I see headlines in, in our own APTA publications, this is physical therapy helps patients. That's like saying medicine helps patients without right. saying what medicine helps what patients. And then there's also articles that are published. Uh, I, I remember one so well by, I was so upset by it, by uh, where Tony Delito was one of the publishers and said, yoga is comparable to, is, no, is not inferior to physical therapy, but not what physical therapy. Yeah. And, and I think this is a, is a huge misservice. Uh, right. It's like, it's, it, it's just so easy to do. I, I kind of call it medical cheerleading. That, that's sort of what I thought I was doing when I first entered the profession. Uh, yeah, it, it is frustrating. I see it all the time. And um, it really is hard to counteract. It is, Ellen, and that's that's my other big point is because, you know, tradition pervades. It, it's much harder to change things that have been in place for long numbers of years. And you really have to take some more radical steps to, to climb out of this long-held perception of what a profession's all about. Yeah. Another point, Shirley, that you make in your piece is that you're, you express concern over the lack of a basic systematic examination of movement by our profession and how it contributes to excessive variability in our practice. Could you talk a little bit about how you think this absence of a systematic examination leads to the variability that you have talked about? Well, Alan, I, again, because I've been out there so long um, in this profession, um, and believe it, well, I'm sure you'll believe it, um, I actually started with the, with the polio patients. And in some ways, it was kind of straightforward because you, um, you, you knew what was wrong with them. The, the muscles died because the nerves had died and they got contractures and they got weak. And, and, and that was what you, well, as soon as the vaccines came in and when they were replaced by the neurological patients, this whole profession went to an emphasis on treatment systems. So it, it's all been identified by what system of treatment do you use rather than what's the underlying condition. And I think as long as, and everybody develops their own terminology, it, it, they can be talking about the same thing, but they got their own terminology for it. So, and then we actually, during the neurological era, got away from a standard physical exam because nobody knew what they were doing anyway, so it didn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm totally serious. It's totally I know you are. I came into the field during that period, so I know exactly what you're talking about. So, so we lost any focus on what, what were we really looking at as far as the problem, and, and I can understand it because nobody knew. In fact, in many ways, we still don't know. Um, and, and I think then, and the examination didn't have a structure and the terminology didn't have consistency. So we've just created ma mainly um, treatment system types of intervention. And we, we and the rain, and, and I laugh because the required documentation by many insurance companies is strength and range of motion. And probably most of us know that's kind of useless at this stage in game because people don't have polio anymore. And, um, <laughs> so it, it, it's not used for, for, for what it should be. So I think th that's why we've kind of gone into our own camps of what, what system of treatment do you use? What system of treatment do you use? And there's not any commonality uh, in, in these approaches. And it's kind of like, what's the most popular thing this year or right now? You know, whether your uh, 
moving joints or stretching nerves or worrying about fascia, who knows? It all depends upon which camp that you're, that you're in. So I think any kind of consistency is, is, a problem, is problematic. And that's why there's so much variability because we haven't talked about how to do things consistently. And I had a requirement for that. Okay, let's talk then about your central thesis, or at least what I see as your central thesis in your piece. You argue that a profession accepted diagnostic labels that clarify our knowledge and our diagnostic expertise regarding a body system, which you referred to as the movement system, is the key, or at least a key to achieving both a reduction in this variability, which I agree is a great concern, as well as getting necessary recognition for our profession. So let's talk a little bit about that. I have two initial questions. The first one is, what's the evidence that really supports the argument that movement is a body system? I have to admit, I've struggled with that because in my mind, movement really goes beyond just a body system. It's more in a, I think of it in more of a biopsychosocial context, but you, you have argued strongly that it's a body system. Can, can you talk a bit about the evidence to support that argument? Well, uh, you know, I, I tried to lay out as strong a story as I could in the article I published in 2014 about uh, our identity when the APTA uh, announced that the movement system was our identity. And it's clear that movement is a physiological process. That, that, that's, that's the gist of it. And, and I think you can't take anything out of the biopsychosocial model. I mean, that's why in the article that we just published, it's, it's within that context. The, the virus <laughs> is also determined by the biopsychosocial model. Why, why are the poor people? Why is it the black people? Why is it the people that don't wear masks that are passing the virus on or getting affected by the virus? Diabetes, I have friends with diabetics and it's a lot has to do with their psychological makeup and with their socializations and what they've learned to eat or not learned to eat. So I don't think there's one thing in the health field that isn't affected by the biopsychosocial model. And then it just depends. I, I think Gwen Jahl has expressed it well with how much biology there is and how much psychology, sociology and how much psychology that affects different manifestations. So, and, and in, in many ways, we've already been treating the movement system because we worry about the muscles, we worry about the motor control. We, we have all these pieces. And so it's more than just the movement. The movement is the manifestation and it's a system of systems, just like the metabolic system or the immune system. And these are a composite physiological process produced by the body that keeps it going. And then the great thing about movement is it's whether even synaptic transmitter has to flow, ions flow. There's micro aspects of movement, not just the macro aspect of movement that's important. And uh, I think th that what's become so clear as we move on is how much lifestyle affects all of your diseases. And that that's where movement also plays a, a, a big role. It's probably nothing keeps us as healthy as physical activity. <laughs> you know, if, in fact, if it came in a pill, we'd all be on it three times a day. But what people haven't appreciated is the complexity of movement in, in, in ways that you have to do it right. So I think there's plenty of evidence that this is a physiological process and there's 
lots of need for people to be recognized for the, their expertise and not just yoga teachers or Pilates teachers, but how movement causes problems. So I think that, that it's, and that someone needs to be the expert in that movement system. So those, those are my yeah. arguments. I would have no argument with your position that movement is a system. I struggle with your characterization of it as a body system. It seems more like the, the result of the interaction of a whole lot of different body systems that results either in abnormal or more normal movement. And is, is not met, metabolic processes also the interaction of a number of systems that act together is yeah. not immunity. The yeah. interaction of a number of systems that act together to give you a, a process that either incre increases or decreases your immunity or takes it off in different directions. I, I, I don't see where that's any different than the manifestation of movement in an external or an internal type of context. Yeah, well, okay. Um, let's, let's talk about another um, thesis in your, in your piece. You draw comparisons with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which has been around for 70 years now. And- uh, 52, yeah. Yeah, the DSM is a standard classification of mental health disorders. And it's described as being used by mental health clinicians and researchers of many different orientations. And it's clearly presented as something that is not discipline specific. Um, I have a concern that if we talk about the movement system and diagnoses that are profession accepted and profession generated, that we might end up going down the path that nursing did in um, nursing diagnosis, which in my view would be a really bad path to fall into. And I, I know that you, you don't think that's, that's where we should be going, but I think there's a risk that I'd like you to talk about if we create classifications and diagnostic categories just within our own profession, if we want it to be used much more widely by people who deal with movement beyond physical therapy. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you point this out. And, and if there's a terminology uh, misunderstanding, I, I consider uh, neurological uh, diagnosis as uh, profession specific. In other words, neurologists make neurological diagnosis. I consider psychiatrists uh, making mental health diagnosis as a profession-specific uh, category. The, the, the big problem was when the diagnosis were for nursing were labeled nursing diagnosis. We're not labeling these physical therapy diagnosis. They're to be labeled movement system diagnosis. And indeed, uh, I... I totally want and expect that other professions would use these diagnoses. I think the physiatrists or doctors of physical medicine would be early on uh, moving in this direction since they're the ones that also deal in a conservative way with uh, musculoskeletal disorders, for example. So if the terminology is confusing, then it needs to be modified. But what, what I, the reason why I used it that way is that uh, I think there's huge confusion within our profession about what we're diagnosing. I, I can't believe how many documents say physical therapists make a diagnosis. 
And I have never seen an Ill, a, 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 a document that says, these are the diagnosis we make. It's like, show me the list. How, how can we all be making diagnosis without any kind of list? And I do know that the whole move to the clinical doctorate was so that we could recognize conditions that didn't belong to us. Well, and, and I think we have much confusion about our trying to diagnose things that physicians won't diagnose without radiology. And I don't wanna be a, a, an orthopedic surgeon. I, I don't wanna be a physiatrist. I wanna be a physical therapist who diagnoses movement related problems and who looks at movement system problems. I think what we need to do is to, is to make sure that we clearly identify that we're the ones that are best suited to make those diagnoses. An orthopedic surgeon could diagnose frozen shoulder, but they wouldn't, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, a, a neurologist could diagnose frozen shoulder, but they don't. They send them to an orthopedist to know what's really going on with that condition and vice versa. I've seen orthopedic surgeons that couldn't recognize a Parkinson patient and they know there's something wrong, but they send them to a neurologist. So you have to tie yourself in with a system that makes, uh, uh, has expertise in that particular field. And, and I think we haven't, one, said it's complex. And number two, we haven't said we're the experts in being able to recognize these conditions. But you're not arguing that we own movement diagnoses. Not, not for a minute. That, that's why the definition is general and not tied to physical therapy. We're not saying these are physical therapy diagnoses. We're saying these are movement system diagnoses and people need to learn. You know, I, I think it's so important, Alan, to realize that when, when the public or even other health professions uh, look for expertise, they're looking for expertise on a body system or a body part. You know, the dentist has the oral cavity. They look to the dentist for that. A physician could do what a dentist does but they don't because somebody has more expertise than, than they do. And I, and I think that that's why we need to uh, capture this expertise in this field, not to make it exclusive, but if somebody needs more work on it, more understanding of what's going on, that's when they consult the physical therapist. And actually, you know, I, I worked for a hundred years and, I, and that's what doctors would use me for. And they'd say, well, she's not a regular physical therapist. <laughs> why? I know. Well, because I put well because I'm old and I put a label on it. I get it. I worry that if physical therapy as a profession is the only group that defines movement uh, diagnoses and movement classification, that we are going to fall into the trap that the nurses did. Should we not be engaging other people with expertise, such as physiatrists, in helping the definition of these categories and classifications? I, I, I don't think, I mean, you know, um, James Parkinson didn't run out and say, how many people can help me identify these people that don't move right? He published a paper with, with six patients and said, you know, they don't swing their arms, they have a fascinating gait, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that we have to start with uh, laying out what our expertise is, and then people can join in as, as they want to join in. But I don't see, I mean, Again, the psychiatrist didn't say, come on in social workers and, and everybody else when they put together the DSM. They, you know, they went to work and laid out the foundation and then people can modify it. If you get a, a committee of 900 people, nothing's going to happen because everybody's busy looking at it from their own perspective. But we've been in this area for, for basically a long time without saying exactly what it is we're doing. It's, 
as you know, and people keep saying in documents, we're known for what we do and not for what we know. And yeah. I don't think there's much respect for what we know, to be honest with you. Yeah, I know you've always felt that. Well, yeah, yeah for good reason. Can you talk about terminology in a somewhat different way to help me clarify, at least understand the differences that you're trying to draw? You talk about uh, kinesiopathologic and pathokinesiologic syndromes. And you contrast them with movement diagnoses and movement classifications. Can you help me understand the difference, or am I misreading? Well, I, I, I yeah, in, in some ways, uh, you know, back in 19, 1975, Helen Hislop introduced the term pathokinesiology and talked at that time about a problem with an identity. Nobody knows what our body of knowledge is or what our basic science is. And uh, I 100% agree, and Jules Rothstein, <laughs> 15 years later made the same plea. And I, and I think th that the term pathokinesiology is a good one, except what that term means is how a pathology in a contributing system causes a movement problem. So if you have a cerebral vascular accident, you end up with disordered motor control. You don't move right anymore. So this is a pathology in a system causing disruptive movement. What I think is critically important these days is to use the term kinesiopathology, which means how movement is inducing pathology. And I think that's what is becoming more clear all the time, whether it's too much movement, impaired movement, or insufficient movement. I mean, we can even take it to, if you don't move enough, you get diabetes, and particularly if you eat wrong. If, if, if you don't move enough, you also don't have a good cardiovascular system or you don't have good strong bones. So they, they can lead to problems but also movement induces musculoskeletal problems. That's what we're learning is these aren't acute conditions like we had when I first started out in the profession. These, everything is almost lifestyle related and chronic. So the big categories, just like a physician looks at pathophysiology or pathoanatomic and then makes a diagnosis related to those large areas of problem. So too, we should be making, and we have some neurological based uh, uh, movement system categories, diagnosis that relate to the pathokinesiologic condition and the kinesiopathologic condition, we have movement-related diagnosis that describe the kinesiopathologic condition. So those are the big categories. And they're not pathoanatomic and they're not pathophysiologic as such. We're looking at the movement manifestation. And that's why we should use the term kinesio with them. So that's the difference. Those are the big categories the diagnosis fall out from under those categories. I see. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, another thing that I would find uh, helpful, I'm, I know you're well aware of the WHO ICF classification, as well as the WHO ICD classifications. Can you relate your thinking on movement and movement diagnoses to the ICF classifications? Yes, I, I, think, I think this fits perfectly because if you look at that schema, it starts with health condition. And then you have the uh, uh, disease or disorder. Well, the disease or disorder is really what I was just mentioning a minute ago. That relates to a pathophysiologic problem or a pathoanatomic problem. What I see is another comparable branch coming off of this health condition, and it's a pathokinesiologic or a kinesiopathologic and that gets a movement system diagnosis, just like the other one gets a diagnosis by another health professional. And then you run through the rest of the scheme. Limiting us to body structure and function 
<laughs> doesn't do it for me. I don't think we should come in down there. I think we should come in up at the top with our own movement system diagnosis, just like the physician has their diagnosis and then run through the rest of the scheme. So you have your body structure and function, you have your activities, you, you, um, and whatever that last category is. And, but if, and if, you, if you define movement as a body system and the ICF defines impairments as body systems, isn't that going to be confusing to people because you're arguing the um, the movement diagnoses should not be in the impairment classification. It should be proximal to that. But the ICF defines impairment as body systems, and you're arguing that movement is a body system. I'm talking that there's. I'm talking about there is a movement system, and that should have its own diagnosis. And I think. Um, impairment, I mean, you know, impairment runs from little bitty, it ain't, it isn't ideal to huge pathology. So I think that's, that's a, a great big term that still needs to be defined more clearly as you break it down. It's, you know, I mean, short hamstrings can be an impairment, but also, uh, you know, a, a major lesion can be an impairment as well. So I, I don't think that's, that's very helpful. Let me, no, I, I agree. And of course, there are many sub um, categories of impairment. Do you see movement dysfunction as a subcategory under impairment, or do you see it as something that's proximal? I see it as something. I, I see it as something proximal. That it, I think, I mean, once you get into a diagnosis, you've got to have something that's abnormal or not, or not optimal. But you've got the, the disease or disorder is proximal to all of that too. And you've got to have something wrong to be there. So you can have something wrong in the movement system just the same way. I think you may, you may add confusion by using the body system designation if you want to incorporate it in some way into the ICF because they use that phrase, that terminology differently. Well, you, you know, um, what would you do with movement disorder, which neurologists use? Where does that go? It depends on how they define what a movement disorder. Well, like like Parkinson's disease. If you have Parkinson's disease, where are you going to put Parkinson's disease? Yeah, that would come under the health condition category. Yeah. Okay. So I, I don't see any reason why you, you can't have flexion syndrome under a movement system thing. You don't have to say, this is the specific impairment. You talk about what the syndrome is, just like Parkinson is a syndrome. Well, I, as always, I enjoy discussing these with you, Shirley. And uh, I would encourage the listeners and uh, viewers today to really take a careful look at your point of view, which has just come out in the January issue of PTJ um, I think it would it should stimulate a lot of discussion and further thinking on this. Ellen, I just I just have to ask you don't don't you think it's a disservice to the profession to have on so many documents? I'm reading through the documents related to what we do for Medicare, and everything says the physical therapists make a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a treatment program. How can we go on talking about our being diagnosticians when we don't have any that we make? You know, and I've checked with people that that um, re read documentation and, and they'll just say, well, leg pain, neck pain or whatever was the referral in. 
you know, I, I did learn, I just want to make this one comment. I did learn early on that when the, the referring physician said to me, a patient has a hemiplegia, it was not very helpful. Uh, <laughs> I, that was started to plant these seeds about, we need some labels that describe our conditions. And then to advertise that we're diagnosticians without any kind of explanation of what they are is a huge disservice to the profession and to people that want to use physical therapy. I, I agree with you. Uh, although I do see some potential um, pitfalls when we refer to them as our conditions. Uh, well, I, nobody said there are conditions. We said they're movement system conditions. You just did, Shirley. Well, I mean, our conditions meaning, isn't it the neurologists talk about their conditions, their neurological conditions? I, I think if we clarify that we're not looking at the same thing, we're not trying to make the same diagnosis as the, the physician. And yet, if they want to use our diagnosis, that's okay. I can't use theirs because they're out of my scope of practice, but they could use ours because they won't be out of their scope of practice, but they won't have the expertise. Yeah. I think it would clarify things rather than confuse things. Okay. Okay. Well, sorry. I look forward to further discussions as always. I Thank you so. for taking the time today. Thank you very much for allowing me to do this. I appreciate it. This is an APTA podcast.